Let's pray together. Oh God, bring down those walls. The walls of prejudice, the walls of pride, the walls of guilt, the walls of addiction, the walls of fear, the walls of sin. Dear God, tear down those walls, we pray. And may something in Holy Scripture this morning instill in us a new hope of what you are indeed able to do. In Jesus' name we worship you. Amen. A few days ago I read this heart-rending story. Datelined Little Rock, Arkansas. Associated Press carried the story. Dr. Jonathan, Jonathan Drummond Webb had a gift for fixing heart defects in the tiniest patients, and it made him one of the best in the business, but apparently that wasn't good enough for him. Drummond Webb's extraordinary success rate for repairing complicated defects in hearts the size of an adult's thumb and his flair with patients and their families had made him a surgical star. He came across as a hero in a four-part primetime ABC documentary in 2002. But on the day after Christmas, Drummond Webb killed himself with an overdose of painkillers and bourbon just three days after what seemed like another medical miracle, the, the, the successful use of a miniature heart pump that kept a 14-year-old boy alive until an organ became available for transplant, the 45-year-old surgeon left a profanity-laced suicide note in which he indicated he felt his work was underappreciated and ranted about colleagues at Arkansas Children's Hospital and at the Cleveland Clinic where he formerly worked. Every day my living hell, the scribbled note read. These people don't care. I have a gift to save babies. The world is not ready for me. How utterly tragic and sad. The loss of a life so young. It was so much to offer. How did he put it here? These people don't care. I have a gift to save babies. The world is not ready for me. So much heartache behind those scribbled lines. It's possible maybe even you feel that way. People don't care. It's possible for you it's been reduced to God doesn't care. One last line. Colleagues said Drummond Webb was his own toughest critic. Some would say they saved 98 out of 100, said his colleague Dr. Jonathan Bates. But he looked at it and said, I lost two. I lost two out of 100. Always remembering our losses and pointing out our failures.
Is God that way with us? Is God as hard on us as we are on ourselves? As we are on others? For every one of us today who struggles over the, the, the ratio of successes and failures and privately worries where the final tally will stand with God. For all of us today, there comes some very, very good news in Romans 4. I wish you'd open up your Bible, please, to Romans chapter 4. It's been a while since you and I have been to this book. We, we started in Romans 1 with some, wow, it seemed like incredibly good news, but no sooner had we encountered that good news than like one of those great America roller coasters, and I've been on two and no more. One of those great American roller coasters, great America roller coasters, we went plunging right in the middle of Romans 1. We go plunging, thundering down through chapter 2. Thundering even lower through chapter 3. It seems like the, 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 worst cannot, the, the, the news cannot get any worse than the bottom of chapter 3. And then we come catapulting straight heavenward. And that's where we pick it up right now. Romans chapter 4. We are still going straight up. Now, it's a roller coaster. That means we're going to go back down again. But hallelujah today, Romans 4. We are firing straight into the sky. Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read this in the New King James Version. By the way, that's the, uh, that's the translation in the pew rack in front of you. Didn't bring a Bible, pull it out. That would be, by the way, page 759 in the New King James Version. Let's begin. Chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? The Jews had two heroes. Two big heroes. Anybody who was somebody was able to somehow trace his lineage back to those two heroes. In fact, the entire New Testament opens up with this single line. Take a look at this. The whole New Testament. One line. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Two heroes. If you were somebody, you could draw your family tree right back to the two. Father Abraham, the father of the Jewish race, and of course, King David, the founder of their dynasty. And what Paul does here is he masterfully brings those two heroes back to back in Romans 4. So here we go. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say then? What shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? What happened in his life that can teach us? Verse 2, 4. If Abraham was justified by works, hold it right there, time out, justified. What does it mean, that word? We've run into it before, justified. Poor Dr. Drummond Webb, 45-year-old, brilliant pediatric heart surgeon, found fault with himself, fault with his colleagues, thought nobody cared, and ended his life. He needed to hear the single declaration of justification, which is, I find no fault in you. Like when God speaks those words, it's a, almost a direct quote of that pagan Roman governor talking about the passion of Christ. There Jesus stands. You see it on the screen. Stripped to his waist. Beaten by the in, inhumane scourging to a bloody pulp. And Pilate turns from the capital P prisoner. He looks down to the chanting rabble and you remember the words, I find no fault in him. That is exactly, that is precisely what it means to be justified. It's when God declares of us, I find no fault, no fault in you. The question is, does God really do that to the likes of you and me? I can understand saintly Father Abraham, but how about you and me? Uh, let's read on. 
All right, so verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God can't get, can't get to God on, on that score. For what does the Scripture say? Verse 3, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him. It was credited to him. It was reckoned to him for righteousness. You remember that song? Uh, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord right ahead. No, let's not do any further than that. All right. All right. Wrong song. Ro- absolutely wrong song when Paul quotes this verse from Genesis because at this midnighted moment, Abraham has zero. No sons, no children, period. It's the middle of the night. In fact, I, I want you to just take a quick peek. Keep, your, keep your, your finger in Romans 4. We'll come right back. But you need to see this for yourself. The verse that Paul has just quoted. Genesis chapter 15. Middle of the night. Abraham tossing and turning. I know, God. I know you said that you were going to bless the whole world through my descendants. I don't even have a girl. I have only my servant Eliezer. And you know our custom. If I have no children, he gets it all. Is that how you're going to bless the world? Through my slave? And God interjects into that midnight turmoil. Nope, nope. I'm not going to use Eliezer. I'm going to take those descendants straight out of your body. Hush up. Step over. Don't wake her. Step over, Sarah. You need to get out of the tent. Abraham, I want to tell you something. Listen to me. And here it comes, Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. And then God brought him outside and he said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And God said to Abraham, So shall your descendants be. Trust me. Abraham, you got to trust me. Trust me. Trust me. I can do it all for you. You just trust me. And Abraham stares up into that starry, starry night and he makes up his mind. He makes the decision. Verse six. And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord and God accounted it to him for righteousness. Paul seizes the, that very word. It's the first time the word believe appears in all of Scripture. Paul takes it and shapes it into the powerful logic of his argument in Romans chapter 4. And here is Paul's point. God justifies people not on the basis of what they have attempted, but on the basis of whom they have trusted. That point is so critical. I wish you would take out, please, if you might find it, your study guide out of your worship bulletin. Take your study guide out right now. I want you to write that down. Now, if you came rushing in past the greeters and you didn't get a study guide, just hold your hand up. Our ushers are going to put a study guide in your hand right now. Just hold your hand up. They're coming. And those of you watching on television, let me give you a website. You can get the study guide in this very instant. Go to our website, please, www.pmchurch.tv. Click on to our series, Wine and Milk. I can't believe this, but this is already part 11. Click on to Wine and Milk, part 11, and the subtitle is Father Abraham, King David, and Other Such Ungodly Like Us. Click onto that. It says Study Guide. Click there, and you will have the study guide right now. You're watching this on a DVD. Hit the pause button. Get the study guide, and then let's go. All right? Everybody, there's some, uh, some dynamite quotations here that I hope you'll take home.
Okay, let's get the critical point. Paul seizes the, the first time the word believe appears in Scripture. And what's his point? Write it down, please. God justifies. What's that mean? God declares righteous. God pardons. God saves. God justifies people not on the basis of what they have attempted. Write it in. Attempted. Not on the basis of what they have attempted, but on the basis of whom they have trusted. Write it down. Trusted. In fact, don't even look up. Keep writing. It isn't what you've tried It isn't what you've tried that counts. It's whom you trust. It's whom you trust that matters. Abraham and Sarah can't have children. They have tried and tried and tried, visited every infertility clinic in the land. No good, no dice. There is nothing they can do to contribute to the fulfillment of God's promise. Zero, nothing, nada. Which, by the way is precisely the posture God needs you and me in in order to save us. You can't do a blooming thing. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can a leper change his spots? Nope. Can the Ethiopian his skin? Nope. Then can you who are accustomed to doing evil, can you do good? Nope, nope, nope. Write it down. We can't do a solitary thing to save ourselves. Zero. Nada. Nothing. But the bombshell that you are about to discover is just inches away. Keep reading. Go back to Romans. I forgot to keep my finger there, so give me a moment. Go back to Romans 4. You kept your finger there. Just flip it back. Romans 4. Let's pick it up in verse 3. Just read this line out of Genesis 15. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, verse 4. Now to him who works... The, way, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You can't put in 40 hours this next week and then your, your employer come to you at the end of the week and say, by the way, out of the goodness of my heart, I'm going to give you a gift. Here's this money. And you look down and you say, good night. That, those are my wages. You, there's no way you can call that grace. You can't call that, you can't call that a gift. That is obligation. You owe me that. I did it the hard way. I earned it. That's what Paul is saying. Can't do it. So turn the page. In my Bible to verse five, but to him, to him who does not work, struggle, struggle, struggle to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. Hold on. His faith is accounted for righteousness. You didn't catch it, but I want to point out to you that, in fact, Paul has just written a scandalous line. Come on, come on, think. Two moments ago, Paul said God justified Abraham, didn't he? Yes, he did. And now Paul has just said God justifies the ungodly. Now, look, I know a little bit about algebra. Uh, Isn't this true in algebra? Let's put it on the screen. Algebra. If A equals B. Come on, ladies. Is this true, gentlemen? If If A equals B and, come on, and A equals C, then... B equals C. True or false? Absolutely. If all who are justified are ungodly and Abraham was justified, then Abraham was ungodly. Ungodly? Father Abraham? There was only one rabbi alive. And that would have had to have been Paul who would have made that point, you can be sure. But the point is absolutely critical. Hold on. F.F. Bruce. New Testament uh, professor. Let me put the words on the screen. The description of God. These are F.F. Bruce's words. The description of God as one that justifies the ungodly is so paradoxical as to be startling 
not to say shocking. In the Old Testament, the acquittal of the guilty and the condemnation of the innocent are alike repeatedly denounced by God as acts of unjust judges. I will not justify the wicked, God says in Exodus 23, 7. And by the way, he goes on to note, in the Septuagint version, that would be the Greek Old Testament, the same Greek words are used to convey what God forbids in the law, as Paul here uses to declare what God in fact does in the gospel, end quote. You say, wait a minute, Dwight, what in the world did we just read? Let, let, let me run it back to you. What God declares, listen, think, think. What God declares is intolerable in human courts of law, namely letting the guilty go free. Paul uses the identical Greek language to declare that, in fact, that is precisely what God does in the gospel. Write it down. He lets the guilty, he lets the guilty go free. For he is the God who justifies the ungodly. The entire human race of ungodly from Adam and Eve and Cain to you and me and Father Abraham. Wow. By the way, it's the very same truth Paul was hammering away at in Romans 3. And we, we saw Romans 3 the other day. Just turn the page back to Romans 3 for a moment. May I remind you of verses 23 and 24. Romans 3, 23. You remember this. Everybody remembers this one. For all have what? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it goes on in verse 24. But all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The whole human race has fallen. The whole human race is ungodly. But hallelujah, at the cross, God freely justified, write it in. He freely justified all, all the ungodly human race. And that's up. And by, by the way, God not only covers our miserable, guilty past, He also covers our still falling short, stumbling present. My friend uh, John Pauline, who is a New Testament professor over here at the Theological Seminary at Andrews University, uh, he was sharing this with me just the other day. He said, "Look, if you know, if you those two lines we just read in, in Romans three, if you'll take the two verbs." And the one participle, if you will note the tenses of those two verbs and one participle, it is, a, it is an astounding truth about God. Watch this. He says, in the original language, what, what Paul is saying here is that God's grace not only freely pardons our sinful past, but it also covers our stumbling and forever falling short present. Now, hold on a minute. Past, present, and future. Get this. God's grace has us covered. You say, oh, I kind of knew that. No, 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 no. Wait a minute. You see, most of us who are trying hard to live a good life, most of us figure that what God's grace covers is the past. Thank you, Gregory, for your story. Well, that God's grace covers my past. That's your testimony. And most of us think that, well, thank you, Jesus, for the past. But I have to struggle. And, and, and it, it, it's, it's, it's a terrible part of my life. But I have to do these things in order to win God's approval for the present. But the two verbs and the one participle teach. No, 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 no. Past, present, and future. You can never measure up. You will Always be covered by God's grace. So quit gritting your teeth and saying, I got to do these good behaviors because God will accept me. He won't accept me any other way. Wrong. Just go ahead and do them. Knowing that God is relaxed. God is saying, hey, my grace will cover you. It will cover you from stem to stern. Ah, 
God, Romans chapter 4, verse 5, God justifies the ungodly. But how can Romans 4, 5 be true? You know why? But write, write it down, please. Romans 4, 5 is true because Romans 5, 6 is also true. Write those numbers in. Romans 4, 5 declares God justifies the ungodly. And Romans 5, 6 declares Christ died for the ungodly. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to ask you a question. How many people in human history did Jesus die for? How many? Write the answer down. It's all. Christ died for the ungodly. How many people in human history has God justified? Write it down. All. All. How did F.F. Bruce put it here? Indeed, is a description of God so paradoxical as to be startling, not to say shocking. God justifies the ungodly, all of them and all of us. Listen to this corroborating line from Christ's Object Lessons. You have, you have it in your study guide. You have to fill this in, by the way, to make it complete. All, all men and women have been bought with this infinite price by pouring the whole treasury of heaven into this world, by giving us in Christ all heaven. God has purchased the will, the affections, the mind, the soul of every human being. Now, get this, whether, fill it in please, whether believers or unbelievers, mm, whether believers or unbelievers, all men and women are the Lord's property. God justifies the ungodly, all men and women, whether believers or unbelievers. And that, that Christian classic that Gregory made such an impact in your life, Steps to Christ. Let me share this line out of Steps to Christ. You see it there in your study guide. In the, I love this metaphor. In the matchless gift of His Son, God has encircled the whole world with an atmosphere of grace as real as the air which circulates around the globe. Isn't that great? God's grace covers us just as much as the oxygen does. God justifies the ungodly, all of them, all of us, all the time, the whole time. Even, by the way, after we're dead. Yeah, even after we're dead. I suppose... There's hardly a more compelling example of God's justifying grace than the life story of King David, the other hero, sinful King David, who started out a man after God's own heart and who ended up a broken-hearted man still after God. David. The whole world knows the story of David and Bathsheba. How that flushed by success king. And by the way, let me hit the pause button there. If right now you're experiencing success in your life, everything is coming up roses. Hallelujah, number one. Thank Jesus, number two. And number three, be careful. Be very careful. It isn't when the roller coaster is in the pit that the enemy comes. He waits till you're at the peak and pinnacle and you drop your guard. Wow. The view up here is incredible. Just like that. Boom. David, at the peak of his career, flushed by success, the king secretly impregnates her, quietly murders her husband, tragically lies to the nation, and godlessly ends up breaking every single one of the Ten Commandments. Broken all of them. I mean, we've all blushed through the story 
of King David, this fallen leader, this great sinner. By the way, this is the same David who wrote the words that Paul now quotes. You've got you to read this. David wrote these words. Okay, so where are we? Romans 4, pick it up again in verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, her, her faith is accounted for righteousness. Go on, verse 6. Just as David, here comes the other hero. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man and the woman to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And then Paul says, I want to quote straight out of the, out of the fallen leaders, Psalm 32, verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Whoa. This is the same David. The same David and Bathsheba wrote that psalm. Ah, David learned, didn't he? Discovered in the bitterness of his own experience. I want you to write these down, please. Three unchanging truths about God. Three of them. Write them down, please. Truth number one. These are truths about God. Truth number one. No matter how far you fall, no matter how far you fall, the forgiveness of God is still yours. Gregory's testimony a moment ago. No matter how far you fall, it doesn't matter. The forgiveness of God is still yours. Hallelujah. I thought I'd get more of a response than that. I said, Hallelujah. Yeah, all right. Three truths. Truth number one, no matter how far you fall, the forgiveness of God is still yours. Number two, but no matter how much you've been pardoned, what you sow, you will still have to reap. Yes, you will. Dad was trying to make this point to his boy one day. He said, son, I, I, I wish you would give for me, please. Give for me a hammer, a nail, and a board. The boy hustled to the garage, brought those three items back to Papa, laid them down. All right, boy, now I want you to take that nail and hammer it into that board, board as hard as you can and with great gusto. Good, Dad said. Now, would you please remove the nail? He got the nail out. Good, son. Now, would you remove the hole? Even a father of infinite love cannot remove the hole that the sinner leaves in himself and in the lives of those she's wounded. Can't take the hole away. I'm sorry. So look, if you were thinking about maybe going out tonight and nailing, hammering a nail into yourself, If you've been planning, maybe not tonight, maybe it's next week, maybe in a month or two. If you've been planning, just go ahead and nail that old nail anyway. I don't care. King David, if he could stand before us today, would say, please don't. You can't. Don't, don't, don't. Three great truths about God. No matter how far you've fallen, you're forgiven. Number two, but what you sow, you will have to reap. And number three, hence hence to trust God. Write that in, please. To trust God is still the path of truest joy and deepest fulfillment. Don't do it. Forget it. Forget it. You can live without it. But David chose not to trust God and instead disobeyed Him, but repented and was forgiven and spent the rest of his life living with that terrible hole. And he died repentant and forgiven. And a generation after, get this, after David died... 
How does God remember his fallen but forgiven friend? I want you to write these numbers in and never forget them. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 8. Never forget that verse. You may never have read it in your life. Don't you ever forget it again. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 8. Let me share with you the incredible truth of the gospel now. Let's put it on the screen, please. 1 Kings 14, 8. Another king is in big trouble, is rebelling against God. And so God sends a prophet to this king. And the prophet says, on behalf of God, what's the problem with you? Why have you not been like my servant David? Now, all right, David has been dead for over a generation, okay? What does God remember about David's life? Three things God remembers. Let's put them on the screen. Number one, David, who kept my commandments. Come on, hold a hold a hold a time out, God. What do you mean he kept your commandments? He broke every single t- one of the ten. You know it. No, 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 no. The problem is, you see, you can't be like my friend David, who kept my commandments. By the way, I'm not through here. Let me give you number two. Who... Followed me with all his heart. You kidding? He gave his heart to another man's wife. What do you mean he followed you with all his heart? What do you have? Divine Alzheimer's? Now, I'm not through yet, God says. He not only kept all my commandments and not only followed me with all his heart, but number three, he also did only what was right in my eyes. Have mercy is right. That's exactly what God does. He has mercy. And even after you're dead, you're justified. Wow. Are you serious? Do you mean the gospel is really this good news? Yep, it is. God justifies the ungodly even after they're dead. They're justified. In fact, God treats David as if he had never sinned. And that's the meaning of justified. Would you write it in your study guide, please? What does it mean to be justified? It is just as if I'd... Say that real quick and you get justified. It is just as if I'd never, ever sinned. Write it in. Can you believe that? God justifies the ungodly. And for all of us who are right now saying, well, I want to tell you something, Dwight. I have never fallen as bad as David. Hallelujah. I am much more like Father Abraham, to be truthful with you. I want to remind you about Father Abraham. He is held up. Father Abraham is held up in Genesis 15, 6. There's this glowing halo halo around him. Whoa! Abraham trusted God. One chapter later, just give him a few verses in the very next chapter... Abraham goes in and impregnates his wife's maid because he and Sarah, Sarah figured God really can't be trusted to fulfill his promises. I'm telling you, when it says God justifies the ungodly, it means the whole ungodly bunch of us. No matter which hero you think is the one you identify with. Which is why we all need this promise, Gregory, steps to Christ. Once again, we need this promise too. Page 62, if you give yourself to Jesus. By the way, that's present tense. That means today. Today. Can't deal with yesterday, but today. If we'll give ourselves to Jesus, today and today and today, and accept Him as our Savior, then sinful as our life may have been, for His sake, we are accounted righteous. Listen to this. Christ's character stands in place of your character. And here here it comes. You are accepted before God just as if you had not sinned. Wow. Wow. 
Write it down. God will not save Abraham or David or you or me on the basis of what we've done. God will save us all on the basis of whom we've trusted. That's the point of Romans 4, verses 1 through 8. How does 4 or 5 go? I read it in your hearing. But to him who does not work, but believes on God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith, her faith, is accounted for righteousness. Saved by trust alone, past, present, and future. Ladies and gentlemen, it's called the everlasting gospel. It lasts forever. Past, present, it's, it's everlasting. And if only Dr. Jonathan Drummond Webb had known it. Oh, dear doctor. If only you could have known that there was someone you could have trusted. Who would never have let you down. Not like your colleagues did. Not like you let yourself down. You wouldn't have had to end your life. Forty-five years young. You had so, so much more to give and so much more to learn. Here you were repairing tiny little hearts and you didn't know that there was someone who could repair your own heart too. Now, if only you had known that there was someone who could set you free from all those unrealistic expectations and your penchant for perfection. He could have set you free. If only you could have known that there is someone whose grace is sufficient for all of our miserable failures. If only, oh dear doctor, if only you could have known there was someone who gave his life so that you wouldn't have to take yours. If only you had known Jesus. Where is that clipping? The 45-year-old surgeon left a suicide note. Every day my living hell, the scribbled note read. These people don't care. I have a gift to save babies. The world is not ready for me. You know what? It almost sounds like something Jesus could say, doesn't it? Huh? These people don't care. I have a gift to save. The world is not ready for me. The world really is not ready for Jesus yet, is it? They need to know that there is someone in this universe you can trust with all your life and with all your heart forever and ever. And you know what? We have got to get to this world right away with the everlasting gospel. We've got to get there. Because when it all, what it all comes down to in the end, ladies and gentlemen, it is trust. It is trust. And I'll be very candid with you. That's the biggest area of spiritual struggle in my own life is trust. To trust Him with the past because I don't. I feel guilty. I, I carry guilt from yesterday and today. Why should, I, why should I still be feeling guilty? I don't trust Him with the past. I struggle to trust God with the future. And when you don't trust, you know what it's called? It's called anxiety. It's called worry. And I get this, this, this knot in my stomach because I'm, I haven't learned to trust God not only with the past, but also with the future. And the reality is I, I don't trust Him all the time with the present either. 
And that's why I have these control issues. And if I can't control everybody else's life, at least if I could just control mine and make sure that the pieces fit. I struggle with trust. And maybe, maybe you do too. That old gospel, that old gospel hymn, how's it go? Only trust Him, only trust Him, only trust Him now. He will save you, He will save me, He will save us now. Ladies and gentlemen, for all the Dr. Drummond webs in the world who desperately need to know this same Jesus, for you and me, all this ungodly lot of us, surely the appeal of Calvary is that you can trust me. You can trust me to the very end.